seated. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here, and thank you for joining us online. I'm, uh, if you're new, I'm Ed, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. We're really glad to have you. Uh, how, what does it look like when someone connects with God? What happens? Think, think about, think about um, your friends or family. Think about your children, if you have children. Think about yourself. What, what, what does it look like? And what's at stake? What's ultimately the result of uh, connecting with God or with not connect, with really connecting with Him? What, 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 what's at stake in that? Uh, welcome to the fifth Sunday of Lent and our fifth conversation, a series of uh, messages that we're calling uh, Stories of Jesus. And today, we're looking at the answer to those two epic questions. This is really, today is really about why we're here and why we do this and why we believe what we believe. The story that uh, Ms. Suda is going to read to Kingston today, it's, it's an epic one. This is the story of uh, Zacchaeus found in Luke chapter 19. So let's watch this together. Good morning, friends. Today, my friend Miss Suda is here to share a Bible story about the faith of a very unusual man who climbed a tree. Thanks so much for joining us, Miss Suda. My pleasure, Kingston. Hello, everyone. Our reading this morning, it comes from the book of um, Luke chapter one, verse, chapter 19, verses one through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were, were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's one of my very favorite stories. Zacchaeus wasn't even really looking to change, maybe. He was just curious. How do you think he felt when Jesus not only noticed him, but knew him by name? I would have fallen out of the tree. The entire crowd would be looking at me. The people were not too happy about it, but that's okay because Jesus was happy. What do you think they talked about? What made Zacchaeus change his entire life? Just being in the presence of Jesus and experiencing his love and forgiveness probably fulfilled Zacchaeus in a way that money never could. I hope that we all have that same faith to welcome Jesus into our homes as well. Amen to that. Thank you so much for reading today. Anytime. So often uh, during Lent, we'll 
practice giving up something or, or setting something aside to, to just give us an opportunity to, to focus more, dedicate more energy to our relationship with God, to our connection with God. And once in a while over the years, Diane and I have given up television for Lent. We did this year. And it's always a brutal exercise for me. I'm a basketball fan, so if you're basketball fans, or even if you're not, if you're sports fans, you know that this is uh, March Madness season. This is the time when college basketball does its annual crowning of a champion. And so I'm not able to watch uh, March Madness. But for those of you who are not fans or have not been watching, just know that Almost everybody that we're supposed to root for got beat. Um, most of them were upset, so you've got nobody to root for. And if you're the kind of person who uh, fills out a bracket, I'm sure your bracket is completely busted at this point. Uh, what does it look like when someone connects with God? Now, some people think that it looks like, you know, getting in touch with the God within and uh, being especially mindful, uh, and, and what's at stake in that is maybe a sense of inner peace or a lack thereof. Uh, some people think that having a connection with God looks like the right kind of behavior and obeying the right set of rules and, and living the right way, and, and what it results in or what's at stake is, you know, what happens to you after you die, maybe an eternity of bliss or, or not, et cetera, et cetera. There are many many different ideas for what it looks like for someone to connect with God and then, and then what it means or what's at stake. And as I said, I believe this story this morning, Zacchaeus, gives us a peek at the answer to those two epic questions. So honestly, I mean, this is why we're here. I don't know that we've ever had a more important conversation on Sunday morning here at Gateway than this one. So with the Zacchaeus story, where are we in the life of Jesus? If you've been following along with us, we've tried to tell a little bit about what's going on in Jesus' life each week when we talk about one of these stories. And last week, we were kind of in the middle of his life and his ministry. Uh, now we're almost at the end. Most people believe that Jesus' ministry life lasted about three years. He did a, a went around teaching, did incredible things. And the incident in Zacchaeus's life happened late in Jesus's life. And in fact, this is very near the, the last week of his life. He's on his way to Jerusalem for what would be the last week of his life. I want you to see this map. This, this shows you the, the route that Jesus took to get to Jerusalem. He starts up in Capernaum. If you can see that, it's really little up at the top near the Sea of Galilee. Comes straight down, and then he goes east to follow along the Jordan River Valley. I don't think you can see that. But at that point where he, he kind of takes, uh, I don't know what your perspective is, but he takes a right, he goes east, and then drops down the Jordan River, um, for those of you who went to Israel with us last year, that point right there, you can't see it on the map, but that is Beth Shen. And we went to that spot. It's a fantastic Roman ruin. I mean, it, it, there is a, a, a street that's colonnaded. It, you feel like you're in Rome when you're, you're walking uh, down it. Uh, then from Beth Shen, it's pretty desolate until you get down to the bottom crook where he then turns back west and goes up north, and that's where Jericho is. Now, uh, by this point in his life, Jesus had a clear view of where he was headed and what was going to happen. 
In fact, on several occasions, Jesus told his disciples where he was headed and what's going to happen. I'm going to give you one of those. Luke chapter 18 says this. Look at this. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon. They will flog him and whip him, kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Listen to this. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. You know, imagine how they felt later when they realized how clueless they had been. I don't think that's hard for us to imagine because we're often equally clueless. So it's interesting to see that crowds were following him at this point and, and mostly applauding him. Even though he's far away from Galilee, there were still crowds of people following him and several significant things happened on this trip down to Jerusalem, one of which was he healed a blind man. This is, happened very near Jericho, right outside of Jericho. And when he did, you know, the crowds were stunned. They're applauding him. So he rolls into Jericho, surrounded by this huge crowd of admirers. And it seemed like he just intended to pass through Jericho. In fact, that's, that's the way Luke says it. He says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was near the desert. And this was the place that, that you would go if you were a traveler going up to Jerusalem you would go into Jericho to resupply for the trip up the hills into Jerusalem. And this was probably Jesus' intention. And then he got waylaid by this interaction with Zacchaeus. So there are four clues in this story itself that I think we've got to see. They, they, they bring the story to light for us, but they also help us answer the two questions that we started with today, these two epic questions so four clues that I want you to see. The first clue is the word architelonis. Architelonis. Now, when Luke said that word, I think he would have had gravel in his teeth. He had a hard time even writing that word, architelonis. That word means chief tax collector. They were worse than unpopular. The tax collector was a social outcast and a sinner. Luke explains it to us right here. The crowd says, verse 7, the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Notice how quickly public opinion has changed. From those who are applauding him, now, now they're disturbed by him. That's the, that's the impact of the archtelones. Not clear what specific law the archtelones was violating, but it is clear that everyone believed that they were violating God's law. Now, it may have been that they were conspiring with the enemy of God's people, funneling resources, by the way, from the pockets of Jews into the pockets of Romans. It may have been that they lined their own pockets with the resources in their work as collaborators. They made their money by overcharging taxes, and the extra went to them personally. You can see why resentment would have built up. They're essentially... Three requirements for being an architelonis. First, you had to have a complete disregard for God's people and God's traditions. Secondly, you had to have a desire for wealth above all things. I'll explain that in a minute. And thirdly, you had to be really good at it. Remember, he's the chief tax collector. There were lots of other tax collectors who answered to him. The point of all of that, the point of that discussion is for us to see the direction of Zacchaeus' life. 
I want us to see where Zacchaeus was headed. I I want us to see how he was operating his life. The organizing principle for Zacchaeus' life was something like maximizing profit, personal profit, and ease at all costs. If he lived with any guilt, it was well hidden behind his wealth. And again, this was wealth above all else. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that uh, Zacchaeus was living this sacrificial physical life. He, he lived a very comfortable life, at least on the surface. But don't mistake how costly that comfort was. It had cost him social acceptance. In all likelihood, it had cost him his family. It had certainly cost him the practice of his religion. This was wealth above all else primarily. This was the direction of Zacchaeus' life. This is who he was. The point is we all have organizing principles for our lives as well. We, we, we live with a certain direction. We, we live with a certain set of of priorities that drive our actions and our behavior. I, I want to be liked. And, and that drive affects all of our decisions. It affects our interactions with others. I, I, it may be, I want to be respected. Or it may be, I want to provide for my family. I don't want them to ever lack the way I did. And, and that drives the way we work. That drives our interactions. That drives the way we spend our money. It may be, I, I always want to get it exactly right. I don't want to ever be embarrassed by being wrong. I'm, I want it to be as close to perfect as possible. Or it may be Zacchaeus's organizing principle, maximizing personal profit and physical comfort. That could be what drives our actions and our choices. We all live with a driving principle or, or set of principles, uh, a main priority or priorities, and, and that principle is behind what we do. It organizes how we live our lives. These drives, these principles they're like the operating system on our heart for you, computer pe- for you computer people. They organize our lives. The operating system determines how we access the, the software that we use. Now, at different phases in our lives, we may use different software, but the operating system that runs the software, that rarely changes. And in that way, we're a lot like Zacchaeus. The second hint that I noticed from the text this week comes from verse 5. This is a great one. It's the little phrase, looked up. I want you to see this in the text. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. You know why I love this little phrase? Because this sounds so much like Uh, an eyewitness. Parents, if you're a parent, I want you to think about a time when your kids told you a story that just captured their imagination. And I'll guarantee you, it it goes something like this. A friend broke his arm on the playground. He was swinging on the swing, and then he fell, and and then his arm, it bent backwards. It went the wrong way. His arm bent backwards. He didn't say, uh, my friend hurt his arm. You know, I know it's a small detail, but Luke didn't simply say, Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He said, Jesus reached the spot, looked up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. Now, Luke wasn't even in Jericho that day. 
It's pretty clear that Luke didn't even become a Christ follower until after Jesus had left the earth. Most scholars believe that Luke got his biography, the source of his biography was really probably one or two or three of three things. One, they believe that there was this source of Jesus stories, Jesus material that was written down, that was passed around. They call it Q, and it was just a collection of stories about Jesus. Don't have that document, don't even know that it exists, but they believe it might have. Also, secondly, uh, many scholars of Luke will suggest that Luke probably had Mark's biography in front of him when he wrote his account. They don't know what order they were written in, but most scholars believe that Mark was written first, and perhaps Matthew and Luke had Mark in front of them when they were writing. And then thirdly, Luke may have had access to one or more of the twelve the 12 disciples who were there with Jesus. For example, he may have heard Peter tell repeatedly about the story of Zacchaeus in Jericho. I believe that Luke may have used all of those sources. Whatever happened, it's clear that this story captured Luke's imagination, so much so that that detail of coming to the spot, looking up, saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down, I want to eat in your home today. That just became a natural part of Luke's retelling of this story. I think that's awesome. So why include it? Why did this story get included in Luke's account? And I can't help but think that the story became important in Luke's mind, first of all, because of who Zacchaeus was. As soon as Jesus said, Zacchaeus, we're coming to your house today. I'll guarantee you that the disciples went, oh no, not this again, not this, because this is always what got them in trouble. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. There were certainly times when Jesus knew things mysteriously, even supernaturally. We saw an incident of that two weeks ago in the story of the guy, uh, the hole in the ceiling, and they Lower, lower him down. Uh, Luke chapter 5, we talked about this. Look at this. Chapter 5, 20, verses 21 and 22. Uh, the Pharisees teach the law, religious leaders, why are you blaspheming? Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? This same kind of thing happens a little while later with a guy with a deformed hand and Jesus is healing him. Luke 6, 8, go to that one if you would be. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to this deformed man, these kind of things happened around Jesus, times when he just knew stuff. But I don't think that's what happened here. Luke doesn't describe it that way. I think someone from Jericho was showing them around. When they noticed Zacchaeus had climbed up the sycamore tree to be able to see Jesus, and this disgusted them, and I think they pulled Jesus aside and they say, said, you see that little man in that tree? disregard him. He, he's the local Archetelonus. And so Jesus made an immediate beeline for the one person that he should have absolutely avoided. And Luke remembered that. I think this instant was memorable for Luke for another reason as well. I think it's the questions that we're talking about this morning. I, 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 think, I think Luke knew, Luke knew this was a big one. I mean, a lot of stuff happened around Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, but this one stuck out in Luke's mind because of what it said about 
what it looks like to connect with God, to really have a relationship with God, and because of what's at stake in a relationship with God. I believe when the disciples reflected back on this one, they realized this was a big one. Just look at what Jesus said. All right, hold on to that. We'll get back to that in a minute. The third hint in this text is a very important one. It's the phrase, look, Lord, that Zacchaeus used right after his first interaction with Jesus. I want you to compare different translations of this. Sorry for this, but these are three different English translations. You know, this was originally written in Greek. The first one up top is the one that uh, Kingston read for us this morning. It comes from the New Living Translation. Interestingly, they don't even translate this phrase, and I think it's a mistake. You see, I've bolded it in both the New International Version and the English Standard Version. That middle version is the one we usually use here at Gateway. They translate it, look, Lord. And then it says, here and now I give. That phrasing, here and now, is not even in the original Greek, interestingly. But I think the NIV adds that in because they're trying to, they're trying to get at the, the exclamatory nature. This is just an exclamation from Zacchaeus. Most people who study the Greek think that the English Standard Version got it best just based on the text. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. This is an exclamation. Uh, Zacchaeus is trying to underscore what's happened to him, and, and I think what he's essentially saying here is, wow, Lord, I'm overwhelmed here. I've got something important to say. And this is big, right? And not just in Luke's mind later. This is clearly big in Zacchaeus' mind. This is really big. And Jesus recognizes it right away. Look, Lord, seeing you, experiencing all of this, I don't know, this is so big for me. I'm going to give half of, of, of what I have to the poor. And, and if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give them back four times in return. Zacchaeus, you know the whole town can hear you. But Zacchaeus doesn't care. And that... That is what a real connection with God looks like. That's what happens. That's how you know. The whole operating system gets replaced. The entire trajectory of your life is altered. The direction of everything is changed. Look, Lord. Everything is different now. I see it all differently. It used to be about this. And now it's not anymore. Now I see it. We have this practice here at Gateway. I've, I've said this a few weeks ago. We'll get back to it, don't worry, when we're in non-COVID times. We call it groupletizing, and Gateway people just love it. It's when we uh, get together and share our darkest secrets, or that's the way you all usually uh, complain, I mean, uh, encourage me about it. I never ask you to share your darkest secrets, but here's the thing, Zacchaeus didn't care. The whole town heard his darkest secrets, and he didn't care. This is what the Bible calls repentance. This is what happens when we connect with God. Repentance means change direction, change course. This is where connecting with God begins. Repentance is where connecting with God begins. It begins with a change of direction, replacing the old operating system. And the people around us see who we were, they see who we are now, and we don't care. 
No opinion matters except for God's. It begins with repentance. We're pointed in a different direction. At the very beginning of his biography of Jesus, Mark, another one of the biographers, he kind of offers a summary statement from Jesus that Jesus must have said many times. He's sort of giving us a clue about what's coming. And this is, this is Jesus' summary statement that Mark gives us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, 15. I want you to hear what uh, Russ Ramsey says about this. Russ, Russ Ramsey is a pastor, and he's one of the authors of the, the Bible app, He Reads Truth, She Reads Truth. Listen to this. It's, it's three or four paragraphs, but it's worth it. This is an audacious thing to say if you think about it, Russ Ramsey's saying. Jesus is essentially saying all of history has been waiting for him. And he's here wrapping his arms around all of humanity saying the kingdom of God has stepped into your world in the form of a man. What you have needed has come and it's me. He goes on. Then Jesus issues a twofold call. Repent and believe the good news. Literally, the term good news means information that brings great joy. The implication here is that Jesus' message should draw from us a response of joyful belief. This is the, the kind of call, this is a different kind of call than you'll find in any other religion, including the religion of unbelief. Why? Because Christianity isn't merely advice for how to live a good life. It is news of something that has happened. A kingdom has come. Then he goes on. Notice how Jesus joins his call to believe with a call to repent. What a juxtaposition, he says. The good news that the kingdom of God has come, come near calls us to recognize we have a reason to admit fault, confess sin and brokenness, and reverse course. The gospel is a liberating insult to our pride. Don't you love that phrase? What Jesus is saying is that there is no other way to find life, the life we were made to live outside of a relationship with God. And the only way to heal that relationship, which is broken, is through faith in Christ. Jesus' call to repent is a call to recognize that the path we're on is the wrong path and we need to turn from it. You know, you, we can be tempted to believe that connecting with God means being a nicer person. That's sometimes what we want for our children if you're a parent. I want them to, you know, I want them to believe in God, they'll be a nicer person, they'll be a better person. It's what we're aiming for. Or we can believe that connecting with God is really at its heart being more religious, praying more and knowing more about the Bible and doing more church stuff. But that's not what it means at all to have a connection with God. That's like saying, being a great soccer player is knowing your position. I'm a, I'm a striker, so I'm a great soccer player. Now, great soccer players know their position, but that's not what makes a great soccer player. Or it's like saying, being a great soccer player is like uh, having the right shoes. I have Nike Phantoms, so I'm a great soccer player. That's not what being a great soccer player is. Nike Phantoms might help a little if you own them, but that's not what being a great soccer player is. Lionel Messi Looks like a great soccer player when he handles the ball, no matter what shoes he's got on. Connecting with God doesn't look like being nice or even being religious. It, of course, results in that, but it actually looks like, wow, Lord, I'm overwhelmed. 
I need to readjust here. Now I see. I only want what you want. I only care about what you care. I don't care about anything else. I don't care what anybody thinks. I want you to be the governing principle of my life. And that connection changes everything. All right. The last hint I want us to see comes from Jesus' response. So Jesus says, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And here Jesus is telling us what's at stake in having or not having a connection with God. To help us understand this, think of what Jesus could have said at this point. He could have said, based on what we just heard, Zacchaeus's good standing in Jericho has now been reestablished. Or he could have said, because we can see how Zacchaeus truly feels, Zacchaeus, we all recognize, is a good person with a good heart. Or he could have said, good job, Zacchaeus, I commend you. Instead of that, it's as if Jesus has rummaged through the entire language to find the most dramatic term he can come up with to describe what's just happened. And this term, by the way, becomes the main image that the first followers would use repeatedly to describe their own experiences with God. And we still use this term today. Zacchaeus, you're saved, Jesus said. You're saved. I mean, obviously, everything is at stake in a relationship with God. Without it, we're lost, we're doomed, we're done for. Look, Zacchaeus had a very comfortable life. I mean, Zacchaeus had the home in South Riding, he drove the Lexus SUV, his kids were doing really well in school and they had all the right friends. He had a very, very comfortable living. He was the chief tax collector. Not very popular, but he had enough money to overcome that obstacle. Besides, there were plenty of Romans and plenty of unsavory characters who loved saddling up to this kind of wealth. And yet, with all of that, he needed salvation, not, not readjustment, not tweaking, not even correction. He needed salvation. And so do we. So do you. So do the people that we love. There's something else critically important to see about this. Jesus declares that salvation has come to Zacchaeus. Jesus makes this declaration. Repeatedly, throughout the stories of Jesus, we see the same thing over and over again. Jesus becomes the centerpiece of the exchange between us and God. Can you see how central this is to who we are and why we believe what we believe? Even when he says, you've shown yourself to be a true son of Abraham, Jesus is not saying, great Zacchaeus, now you're a good Jew. Jesus is saying, now you're a person of faith. That's what Abraham was. Abraham was the father of the faith. And, and where is this faith placed? It's placed in the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. In Zacchaeus, we see a life being transformed right before our eyes. Salvation coming to a person. Spiritual, emotional, radical redirection. The governing principle of this man's life is changed right in front of us. His future tra trajectory is entirely different, and Jesus is at the center of it. He always is. This is why we call ourselves Christians or Christians. 
This is why the Apostle Paul said what he said to his young friend Timothy. I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at this. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. We've seen that one of the subtexts of all these biographies of Jesus, especially Luke, is the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And their main reason for writing is to show us. They want to demonstrate it. They want to prove it. They want to prove who this Jesus is because this guy, Jesus, is central to seeing who God is. He's central to a real connection with God. A real connection with God looks like a life completely redirected. It looks like a change in our operating system. It looks like turning the controls of my life over to God. It looks like me, instead of headed in this direction, heading in a completely different direction with a different governing principle, and Jesus is at the center of that. And the results are dramatic. It changes my present and my future. My actions are different. My heart is different. My appetites begin to change. My future is changed. And it happens because Jesus sees me and I see him. It happens because I repent and believe. I understand the story, I believe the story, and I come to know him for who he is. So we're left with a couple of questions this morning. Do you know him? Has this happened to you? And if it hasn't, it's time to ask. It's time to invite. It's time to recognize. It's time to acknowledge the old operating system and welcome God to change your, to change your operating system, not the software. You don't add being nice. You don't add getting rid of this bad habit. The entire operating system gets changed. And for the many of us who have had that experience in our life, it's time for us to ask, how often this past week did I dial into the old operating system? Because it's still there. It's still running in the background. We still constantly have to kill it and default to the new operating system. Do you know him? And this week, have you recognized him in everything you've done? Let's pray. Father, uh, if there's anyone watching or, or anyone here this morning who has, has never connected with you in this way, has never sat in the tree and heard you say, Ed, I see you. Come down. I want to hang out with you. If there's anyone who has never felt the complete and utter shattering of the old operating system and the recognition that you're in, at work in us doing something completely new. 
Lord, this morning, we give a moment for us to cry out to you. Jesus, I recognize that I've been on the wrong course. I recognize that I'm a sinner. That I need you. I recognize that you're welcoming me. You're calling me. You're telling me to come. And I, I want to. I want you to be the governing principle of my life. I want you to take control. I want you to be the priority. I want you to make the adjustments. Lord, for the rest of us, we, uh, we recognize the times this week that we have um, leaned into the old operating system. And we're so sorry. We ask you to forgive us. We thank you so much for the replacement. We thank you for the salvation. We thank you for what we've experienced in you. And today we remember. And once again, we reaffirm, we lean into you. We recognize that your opinion is the only one that matters. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.